When you actually put the numbers in front of you, even if it's uncomfortable to say, man, seven stocks are driving everything. Well, they're driving things for a reason because that's where the growth is and that's where the margin increases as well. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. How are things? Things are well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. Yeah, it's good to speak to you. Um, we were discussing before we, we came online, but pretty opportune time, I think, to speak about the Magnificent Seven. That's going to be the focus of, of today's conversation. Um, I want to start with Meta, um, their $197 billion surge uh, that we saw is is the biggest in stock market history up circa i think 20 percent since announcing earnings on thursday but for those that missed it and before we get into the magnificent seven at large give us a brief overview of kind of what's happened with meta and what's happening amongst this uh interesting group of stocks at the moment yeah no i think um uh, meta is a prime example of i think the power of the largest companies in the U.S. market, the global market, and you know what's really become to be known as the Magnificent Seven. And uh, Meta has had an unbelievable increase in its share price and market value since reporting earnings. And the reason why is the earnings were great. Um, I think it's difficult. I'm sure you could find a fundamental analyst out there to nitpick um, certain uh, certain data points or certain projections. But at the end of the day, it was a clean earnings report. Um, I think uh, the team uh, at Meta was a bit left for dead um, coming out of the um, uh, investment that they had into uh, into the metaverse, the pivot of the company. Um, of course, then that came and coincided with pretty t- difficult digital advertising environment. Well, all that's changed. Uh, so the company uh, actually saw an increase uh, in everything from daily active users to monthly users uh, to then translating into pretty robust revenue and then stronger targets, even as they're spending a significant amount of money. Now, some of that is coming at the expense of, of headcount, but I think one could argue that many of the uh, tech companies may have overhired during the COVID period. And uh, last year was the 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 focus on rationalization and year of efficiency, and it paid off. Plus, uh, the kicker is they're actually uh, increasing their buyback program and paying a dividend. Um, so we're seeing the company sort of mature before our eyes, but it's still a growth name, um, which is, I think, why the market became so excited about it. It has bit up its price so sharply. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great overview. I think there's a few things that I want to dig into, particularly around kind of the key, the key growth levers and drivers that are, that are pushing earnings and the key reasons and primary reasons, I suppose, we saw such uh, outstanding earnings results last week. But before we do, let's kind of take a step back and look at this group as a whole. Um, you know, that these are tech and kind of AI related uh, companies more personally, I suppose, given the current environment. Uh, we saw their shares grow an unprecedented average of 111% last year, uh, whilst their concentration in the S&P 500 grew to 29%. And that's the la- largest proportion that group has ever held within the overall 500. So perhaps you can just give us an overview of the key tailwinds, not just fueling growth for Meta, but gr- fueling growth for, for that whole group. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. So um, when we uh, when we take a step back, uh, many people are sort of concerned that there's significant amount of concentration uh, in the U.S. equity market, right? Only a handful of names are, are driving outsized returns, and and really sort of uh, without them, mar- markets would be uh, perhaps less exciting. Uh, now. Um, 
I actually, that's kind of a, maybe a separate market structure concern, but we have to first and foremost remember, we're talking about seven stocks uh, when we talk about the Magnificent Seven, but we're talking about actually hundreds of companies. Um, so what's changed, uh, uh, what is different, even though those are the most dangerous words in finance, is over the last decade, these companies have actually uh, grown into different areas, right? Uh, Alphabet is not just Google search, of course, right? Uh, yeah. Whether whether it's YouTube or, or other investments that they've made that that are starting to pay off, um, so I think that's important. Each of them are very very de- tech focused. Some of them are more consumer driven. Uh, Apple and then I, I Tesla is in that category, and mm-hmm. a, and a sort of newcomer uh, is sort of an infrastructure play like like Nvidia. Uh, mm-hmm. That 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 kind of comes to mind. But what's consistent with all of them is that, again, not necessarily every quarter, but if you look at the longer term picture, their 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 growth has been significantly stronger than the market. And by that, I'm meaning specifically revenue growth or earnings growth. It's also, again, been relatively consistent in a time where growth has been hard to find. Um, so even... Um, uh, even if, uh, you know, generally, there's questions about well, in this day and age, what's really driving markets is the economy or the market itself. Um, what we do know is that whether we're recession or not, um, or soft landing or not, growth isn't um, everywhere isn't gangbusters economically. So that means earnings growth is going to be relatively constrained. However, mm-hmm. these companies have shown that they have the ability to consistently put up um, uh, strong earnings numbers. Yeah, interesting. So um, is it that we need to distinguish them between kind of high quality growth companies and the more speculative kind of potentially over leveraged businesses that kind of, I could, I guess, traditionally sort of characterize the, the tech sector? Is that an important distinction now to make in 2024? Yeah, and that's sort of, and, and I think that's actually been a bit of a misunderstood driver because mm. we know that tech, um, as a group, um, you know, did exceptionally well coming out of COVID, uh, or in the depths of COVID, then 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 through COVID, uh, and then that came to a screeching halt uh, in in 2022, and then last year was a huge bounce back. Um, what some folks, what kind of a traditional market prognosticators or folks trained in classical finance including to some extent myself, which I try to sort of like check, which I need to check sometimes, Hmm. is that typically when people think about quality, it's focused on things like companies with high ROE, low debt to equity, um, strong efficiency ratios and the like. These companies have some of that, but what a lot of those companies that traditionally have strong ROEs and things that also come with a lot of, can come with a lot of debt in this market. And so they're more interest rate sensitive than folks realize. The mo- a very interest rate sensitive sector is unprofitable companies. And a lot of those are tech companies. And when we, if we separate the wheat from the shaft, turns out those unprofitable companies are not being rewarded by the market. They don't really have uh, what I consider to be kind of a, a catalyst absent material rate cuts or even quantitative easing to see their multiples expand. What does have a catalyst is companies that have shown the ability to have more, consi- more consistent growth and have the ability um, to be diversified in their sort of quality nature. And a lot of that leads you to companies uh, like Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet. Um, and at different periods, you know, they haven't been as exciting as they have been, uh, at least from new products. And then once, what happens again, Vision Pro is a great example. 
Now, mm. uh, people are people are, are really liking the product, even if it is expensive. It's first generation, um, and so the reviews on it. Um, you know, of course, with anything, you're going to have a, a particularly a reviewer, whether you're on whether you're on YouTube or for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. You're going you need to nitpick things, but it's been universally positive, uh, and the buzz that's generating ha has been has been pretty strong. So, um, whether it's kind of Meta's great results last week, the release of Vision Pro, um, just two further examples that these companies are continually innovating and leading in ways that um, I think historically we haven't seen. Yeah, interesting. And uh, you showed a really interesting chart. I think it was, I think you posted it to your X feed and we'll, we'll throw it up in the video as well. But that um, distinction you made between not just high quality companies, but the profitable companies, and then you showed non-profitable businesses versus these magnificent seven and the divergence is, is pretty stark. Yeah. No, it was absolutely right. So that uh, essentially uh, when uh, I, I, our thesis has been that companies are going to be rewarding um, kind of consistent, profitable growers. Um, yeah. But what we what we sort of needed to sort of separate or, or investigate, if you will, is, well, what's happened to tech as a group? And to your point, there's the bifurcation. Um, and I yeah. just and I think we uh, investors maybe perhaps need to to, to accept that. Right. Right. Uh, uh, and that's okay because now there's opportunities to sort of um, be be more dis distinct or discreet in the exposures that maybe you're putting on. Yeah, got it. And I guess following on from that point, that bifurcation leads to a concentration that you mentioned uh, earlier on. So to play devil's advocate, then before we you know further explore the bull case for these companies. So what extent should investors be concerned by that kind of concentration or in a Bear's case or a bear description of this, an over concentration within the S and P five hundred. Is that something people should worry about? Well, I think so. There, there's there's two things here. So one, if we're simply talking about the concentration risk, um, it, this isn't the first time we've we've seen it, um, and it, and. And although these are at more extremes, generally in mar market cap weighted indices, uh, and it, it's become so accepted, they're market cap weighted for a reason because the companies that have the biggest market caps have the biggest weights. Um, and I'm being a little silly here, but that's that's sort of yeah. the reality. And in this market, yeah. their mar the market caps of these names, including a few others, have just skyrocketed because of the um, the profitability and growth that they've shown. But the real again, if I want to play devil's advocate and and kind of uh, uh, embrace the bear case for a moment, mm -hmm. it comes down to valuation. Um, yes. uh, and many times that's what it always comes down to, particularly with tech companies. Um, what we what we had seen is that uh, on a relative basis, um, these companies are not really as expensive as some may may think, but they're not cheap at all. To be to be totally fair, they have been rewarded with um, stronger growth multiples. When we take something and, and go from just the PE ratio to something like the yeah. PEG ratio, so we incorporate growth into that. Um, but I would say, if we look out a year from now, and these companies um, have grown with uh, have grown at the expected rates that they have, but their multiples keep going up, then of course it's going to be hard to say that even at uh, uh, they, they might be a strong a strong buy. But if you're looking, uh, we're not quite there yet. Um, but if you if you were to look into the future and sort of extrapolate these current growth rates plus the growth rate of the multiple, you know, then you run into valuation concerns. 
Yeah, got it. And you, you did a really nice analysis of this on the Roundhill website. We'll post the link to that article in the episode description. But essentially, I think it was posted in uh, late or early December last year, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and it showed the forward PE for this uh, group of Magnificent Seven was around 32 times compared to the S&P 500's 21 times. So yes, on that straight PE ratio, those seven companies, I guess, unexpectedly are more expensive. But then when you factor in the earnings growth uh, and you look at peg ratio, the story becomes far more compelling for the Magnificent Seven. Um, is there anything before we move on from valuation that you, I guess, for the bull case would like to explain, particularly on the the peg ratio side of things that helps uh, helps value investors or, or those, you know, those investors looking at those metrics kind of further understand the investment case here? Yeah, it, uh, I, and I've I've heard folks say this in, in different sort of mediums. You know, there's sort of a like a I'll call it a rude or terse case. It's just mm-hmm. saying, well, multiples are expensive everywhere, um, yeah. and, I, and I and I sort of agree. Um, mm. However, uh, that's not necessarily how I how I do things, but um, it's it. It's un, it would be un, uh, disgenuine, I should say, to say that multiples at 36 times uh, forward mm-hmm. PD is is not is not uh, re- relative to the S and P 500. Now today, sitting here uh, at the beginning of February at 23 times, uh, one is more yeah. expensive than the other. Um, but I like to look at the relative ratio, um, and on a relative basis, you know, so that's around 1.5, 1.6. Mm-hmm. It's it, Historically, that's not um, uh, of of considerable concern. Um, yeah. Though on a relative basis, these seven stocks are not are not inexpensive, but they're neither they're neither incredibly expensive either. With these names, though, I do think you you almost some of them have PE ratios that are. Uh, are have been kind of uh, in in a di- in a different stratosphere or atmosphere, right? And so we've seen that with Tesla, we've seen that with Nvidia. They're they're still priced as true growth companies and not as more the mature kind of quality growers that we see with Microsoft and Apple. So that's why I think it's important to think about peg ratios or other thing things of that nature, whatever your favorite metric may be, that incorporates some growth. And interestingly enough. Um, we are not at extremes there either. After this most recent earnings season, Nvidia will, Nvidia plays a big role here because their their PE ratio is extremely high and their growth has been the highest, at least uh, on a trailing and forward basis recently. Um, that that has con- kept the P, the peg ratio uh, at more modest levels. It has certainly increased though recently, which is why, to my point, if I'm si- if we're sitting here a year from now, and um, and growth has sort of continued but relatively flatlined at some point it's math you can't keep compounding at these levels but valuation keeps going up well then you're going to have expensive peg ratios too um Mm -hmm. but the opportunity that sits in front of us is that we're not quite uh at least according to our analysis not quite there yet and then relative to other opportunities people are hoping you know we all love to own the next great tech company uh, whatever it might be well uh that's human that's a human human nature but we're not seeing um, those companies be rewarded, uh, and they need they need the catalyst that some of them are going to have funding concerns at some point. Um, so, so that's that's the reality. So, we're keeping an eye on on both multiples and and and, the, and of course uh, growth adjusted multiples uh, because uh, uh, that's something that's that's really important. But where uh, we haven't quite hit levels that are 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 at extremes. 
Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, and kind of digging into that then, um, I guess, you know, fundamental to earnings growth is an expectation that sales will increase or there will be some level of sales growth there. We had, uh, I read, I think it was David Costin, Gold, uh, Goldman's chief US equity strategist. He underlined the perform, had the importance, sorry, of sales growth to the future performance of these companies. So he, I guess, joins you in assessing, you know, or essentially stating that the, sales growth for these businesses isn't done yet. There's still room to run and the medium term horizon suggests that, you know, these, these companies are going to do pretty well and continue to outperform the rest of the market, at least on that basis. I think if we look to quantify that, he expects the group will grow sales at 12% through 2026 compared to just 3% CAGR for the remaining 493 companies in the S&P 500. So just as a way of kind of quantifying, rounding off this conversation about uh, earnings growth, are you more or less bullish than, than David? Uh, I think maybe slightly more, but I really like what I liked in his report. Um, that I think it came out last at the tail end of last week is he acknowledges many of the things that we're acknowledging, right? The yeah. index, the index weight is very high, but also the earnings growth rate is, is pretty high. What's really interesting though, is that they, he took it a step further and then kind of quantified that quality growth or mm-hmm. quality revenue and looked at margins, right? And mm-hmm. the year over year growth and the margins of these companies is, is really, really impressive. They've grown, according to his analysis, you know, at uh, uh, 747 basis points, while the other 493 companies have contracted 110 basis points. So that's for some that might be your answer right there. Then you throw in the sales growth that he has at you know 14 percent versus two for the 493. So. When you actually put the numbers in front of you, even if it's uncomfortable to say, man, seven stocks are driving everything, well, they're driving things for a reason because that's where the growth is and that's where the margin increases as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to get onto that point of the report. I think it's, well, it was extremely compelling when I read it and it kind of helps to underline the, the overall investment case here. Um, to make this a little bit less abstract then, I wondered whether you could, we've talked about meta and kind of ad revenue and that coming back and um, at least for anyone not as close to the stock, they might have seen that kind of transition to focus on the metaverse as a bit of concern, which I think a lot of the market did, particularly at the time when it was announced, but that doesn't seem to have held them back at least recently. What are the key revenue channels, growth drivers that are underlining the performance of each of these businesses? Perhaps if you've got anything else to say on meta, we can start there and then perhaps we can pick another two more. Yeah, let's. Um, I think we we hit on some of the the interesting uh, opportunities with Meta that they are. They're, the year of efficiency that that they put into place uh, last year, you know, has has paid off. Right, their margin growth was incredible, um, and now it's at you know thirty five percent after after being relatively modest. Um, if we also look at you know. <laughs> Companies that have been impressive, although their their size makes the, the ability to put up uh, triple digit growth challenging, is what we've seen, you know, with uh, Microsoft, for example, and, and Azure and the cloud and the integration of AI in into that. Um, it's it's clear that again when ChatGPT really kind of first came out in November of um, of uh, 2022 or kind of became popularized, I should say, is that um, 
is that was it going to be real? Like it's fun to play with, uh, but can actually companies make money on it or can it be integrated in, in a way that's going to be beneficial actually to enterprise where the real money is? And it turns out it's starting to. Um, so the investment that that that's company, that company has made has been uh, uh, has, has started to pay off. Um, Apple's an interesting one. Um, so that's, I think, worth touching on. So yeah. their, their growth from a revenue basis is probably uh, is, is, is relatively is on the low end, uh, mm-hmm. particularly compared to a NVIDIA, which is just as unbelievable sales growth um, mm-hmm. on a low end of the Magnificent Seven, right? Actually lower than Tesla's. Um, but they, they, they already put up, you know, 120 billion in sales, right? So mm-hmm. that's an incredible number, right? We have to kind of recognize that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, by contrast, Microsoft does 62 and they're, you know, neck and neck from a market value perspective. And of course, there's more than just sales growth here, but that's coupled with what has been consistently high margins around, you know, um, you know, around 25% for Apple. So this is a company that, uh, if you look just simply on a delta basis or a rate of change, mm. it's it's not uh, it's not as sexy or impressive as some of the other names, but that's because it, it on an absolute basis produces year in year out an unbelievable number. Where I think the concerns for Apple come into play, and this is this is a reality, is the numbers that came out of China were just bad. Um, yeah, there's sort of yeah. no other way to put it. That's a, probably a conversation for for a later day, which is a meaty topic about what's going on in uh, China stock market, the China economy. But what I thought was impressive was that. Um, the numbers outside of that area were, were strong. Um, it seems like people are embracing, you know, uh, the uh, the upcycling into the new phone um, has happened. And, and Apple once again says, uh, "Now I'm going to show you something that you do want." Um, or mm. a good portion of people will will be able to probably <laughs> begin to afford um, a second generation, which, which will come right um, uh, for for the Vision Pro. Right. So they sold out the zealots of Apple have been waiting to buy that for 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 as long as it could come out, um, mm. but the, but it did not flop. Um, mm. And the result and, and when things like that happen with Apple, like they become a growth company again. So mm. with all <laughs> with all of these. There's, there's nuances to their growth story. Um, there's, there is risk with, with any of them. Tesla's, you know, um, is a prime example where you know that 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 the investors I think extrapolated the ability for them to keep to keep growing sales and in, in the EV space everywhere around around every market that they're in for, forever. They're they're kind of. <laughs> They did not, I think, on their earnings call, could have done a significantly better job of talking about some of the other pivots and opportunities that they're trying to do, whether it's Cybertruck or other areas. Um, but I would never count them out, um, not just because of Musk, but just simply because I think there's more to that company that maybe people appreciate. But at the end of the day, if 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 the cars don't, if the car part, which is where revenues come from, doesn't pay off, then <laughs> investors are, are, are going to be disappointed. And that and that's what we saw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess unless you're Cathie Wood or Ark Invest and your whole kind of investment case there rests on the, uh, well, I guess it's still cars, but the uh, auto kind of robo taxi thesis. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's, that's something else to look at. I mean, you touched on AI there. 
I'm interested to get to dig into that because although, you know, that as you, I think, mentioned, there are nuances that affect kind of each company individually and their growth stories individually. But one thing that could tie the majority of these companies together is AI and the boost that they got from that. People at the time when this first kind of came out, there was a lot of hype, people talking about an AI bubble. But to what extent have we seen that sort of settle down? And to what extent do you see AI kind of forming a significant part of the investment case for each of these businesses moving forward into into 2024? Yeah, and we actually um, um, put put a report together on that over over last mm. uh, I think it was last summer. Um, and and yeah, the concern like like we often see that the concern was that well, obviously we're in an AI bubble; these companies have all been rewarded, but you know what? The, they they many of them have shown that that investments already starting to pay off. Um, this is not... What I think is interesting about AI is that there are themes, um, to talk about kind of thematic investing for a moment, there are themes that are going to happen 10 years in the future, but it's worth buying in now. Um, there are things that are going to happen 20 years in the future that may be worth buying in now. AI is here and now. Um, mm-hmm. It's being used by consumers. It's being used at the enterprise level. Um, and the reason is, it's because it's, it helps with efficiency. It, it helps with productivity. Um, so yeah, the threat of these companies is that AI is the is the is kind of the next driver uh, of um, of new growth, right? Mm-hmm. And the integration of particularly generative AI into products and services uh, is exciting. We have we know that even Apple teased it out about what they're building that could be coming, uh, and they've been kind of mm-hmm. left out. They haven't spoken much about it. Um, mm. They 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 were actually uh, I think a little bit dinged on that maybe maybe last year uh, yeah but that could all that could all that could all change quickly um, and yeah. we're, we're so we're seeing you know Microsoft and Alphabet and others and um, probably a topic for another day but I even you know there's even companies like Salesforce and ServiceNow mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. are you know really kind of enterprise solutions and sale and software sales the kind of that that whole perspective that they're using it it's real right and that's why i think ai is so is so exciting and and it's being powered by the companies in the magnificent seven uh, particularly with cloud platforms and the like so that's um to me a reason why that just furthers, I think, can further the bull thesis. And so the concerns that there is a bubble there, uh, we, at any time you see a new technology and, and companies be rewarded, that's the first thing that a naysayer is going to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, well, let's move on then. I want to finish by talking about the the Magnificent 7 ETF that obviously Roundhill offer, tickers, mags, MAGS. Um, I've got three questions on this. Um, firstly, you know, Mag, Mags helps investors get exposure to these seven stocks. Um, that's why I was so keen to discuss them today. But why choose this ETF over similarly concentrated tech indices? You know, let's, let's pick one at random, the NASDAQ 100, for example. Yeah, and I think that's a good, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a really valid and good, um, and good point here. So um, I also could say that why not use buy the seven stocks themselves? Um, uh, or overweight your fa- your favorite ones, or or not. And if and if that, if that's your objective, and if you want to kind of pick the individual companies, um, please do so. Um, right. That, uh, 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 
that's not necessarily what this solution is for. Um, the ETF, by wrapping the seven companies in an ETF, though, it does do one thing that that's, can be challenging to do, particularly for me, speaking for myself, is that in my best intentions when it comes to rebalancing or having disciplined processes uh, to equal weight companies, well, it can be hard to do so when your winners are winning and your losers are losing. This is going to do it for you on a quarterly basis. So that uh, convenience factor, if you will, can can, be, can pay off from making sort of um, poor decisions that, that maybe you regretted later. When you compare it to the NASDAQ, um, this is hyper-concentrated. It's, it's seven names. Even if you look at the weighting um, that the NASDAQ has, it's going to be you know, very high in these companies too, but it's not diluted at all. Right. So the idea and the reason why we thought that there was an opportunity for this in the market was to provide precision. Um, mm-hmm. I spent uh, 12 years at State Street Global Advisors, um, you know, which pioneered the, the, the first ETF in the U.S. and which is mm-hmm. the, you know, and, and SPY and a lot of other great innovations. But the, one of the original ideas of, of ETFs was that was giving that precision investing um, over yeah. time. Folks have considered uh, certain indices to be precise, but. Um, I think it's hard pressed to say that seven is not more precise than a hundred. Um, so if, if the tool, if the tool that you're looking for, and if you're looking to avoid some of those unprofitable companies that are going to be in the NASDAQ or a lot of other tech indices, mags is a, it can be a great solution for you. Yeah. Got it. And, uh, is it equal weighted? Sorry, I might miss that. Yeah. So on a quarterly basis, the seven stocks, uh, are, are equal weighted. Yeah. Got it. Um, and, you know how how how's it performing? I mean, like we've we've talked about all, like the investment case and the bull case for these seven stocks so far this episode. How's it performed since uh, inception? I think that was last April. Yeah, so it's yet to um, it's yet to be a year old, um, but mm-hmm. it's it's uh, up about since it launched forty seven percent in April of of 2023 and that's outperforming something like the NASDAQ by over 12%. Um, so that fo- that hyper-focused exposure ha- has, has, has paid off um, uh, in, in this market. And that's not always going to be the case. At some point, um, companies that don't make money will be rewarded by investors, but that's going to happen uh, in an environment where we don't have quantitative tightening. And even if we see three rate cuts this year, rates are, are not zero. Um, and so we have to, um, like anything, uh, people become very attuned to the investing environment that they've just been in, right? So for years, people were reluctant to take risk out of the global financial crisis for good reason. Everything was decimated, including people's homes values uh, uh, in, the, in the US and Europe and, uh, and, and, and almost everywhere in between. Um, in this environment, people, people in the most recent one, kind of the, the, the COVID environment, well, pe- people were able to reward companies that were, were hopes and dreams. And I think the reality needs to set in that um, there's going to be, of course, winners and losers, losers out of that group as well. But in the meantime, stick with companies that are increasing their margins and growing their top line sales consistently, which are the Magnuson 7 stocks. And that's a reason why, again, another reason why we thought the, the Mags ETF uh, made sense in the market. And, and investors have begun to embrace it. Um, it's grown uh, relatively well um, in size um, you know, since, since we launched the fund as well. Yeah, fantastic. No, I, th- I think that's a nice overview to end on. Uh, really fascinating insight. But that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, Dave. It's been a real yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here.